Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. The Hope Restored Sermon Series continues. Today, First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page discusses the Kingdom of God and the Kingship of Jesus. Uh, before I read from, from the Gospel of Mark today, I just want to give us a context because it's been a few weeks since we were in Mark, and I just wanted to kind of help prepare so you know what's kind of going on here. Jesus has been arrested. He has been meeting with the high priest and with the council of uh, Jewish leaders called the, the Sanhedrin, and they have finally asked him directly if he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, which he responds in a very definitive way, I am. So the Jewish leaders at this point become infuriated to decide that they want him dead and they want to bring him to Pilate to go do that. And what I'm going to do, besides reading Mark, is add a portion from the Gospel of John so we can see more of the extensive conversation that happened right at this moment. So if you're able, please stand as I read the Word of God, starting in Mark 15, verse 1, and it goes like this. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this of your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, oh, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came to the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Many years ago, as a brand new missionary to Thailand, my wife and I went on a date night. Yes, we had date nights even as missionaries. And we went to go see a movie. And um, now we didn't speak much Thai at that point. So praise God, there was a movie theater right near where we lived that showed Western movies in English. So it wasn't like, you know, it's dubbed entire or something like that. So we sat there, you know, having our first experience, and we're eating our popcorn, and suddenly over the sound system, a solemn tune begins to play. And then suddenly, everybody in the theater jumps up. Now, you know, as an American, when everybody jumps in the theater, you think there's going to be a problem. You know, you're thinking, fire, run, do something, you know. But just then, a montage of the King of Thailand starts to be played out there on the movie screen. And, you know, people are looking at us. We're looking at them like they're probably looking at us like, well, you dumb foreigners, please get up, you know, this kind of a thing. And so my wife and I kind of got up. We're standing there kind of awkward, kind of confused. What are we supposed to do after all? 
And as we watch this montage, and as we listen to this beautiful song being played, that showed that the, the, the montage showed the many wonderful things that the king had done for his people, I began to see for the first time why this man, this king, meant so much to so many. Now, this king is deceased now. I think he died in 2016. But at the time, to say that the Thai people loved the Thai king would be a gross understatement. He was widely seen as a wise and kind and caring father uh, of their nation. And, 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 and they saw him as the representation of the best who they were. The best of their nation was represented and caught up into this man. Now, as an American, it was, it was, it's hard to imagine living in a kingdom, isn't it? We haven't had one for about 250 years or something like that. But even though we've got to understand that we Christians actually do primarily, and first and foremost, live in a kingdom. We live in the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king. And in fact, as you will see, this issue of him being king is the issue which convicted him to death on a cross. Yet if we're honest, it's not easily grasped to have Jesus as king. I wonder if sometimes, if we're sometimes pulls apart from its meaning. So today I want to focus on what does it really mean to have Jesus as king? And as I mentioned a few moments ago, the scene that took place in the, in, in the readings we just had, Jesus was arrested. He was brought through the, to the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council there, and he was interrogated by them. And for the most part, Jesus remained quiet and just, just receiving a barrage of false accusations until, until he was directly asked this question. You see up here that if, if he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the Beloved One, the Son of the Living God, and, and to which he answers in the most clear fashion, I am. Now with this, the Jewish council goes berserk, and, and they and the temple guards begin to spit at Jesus, begin to punch Jesus and berate Jesus, and our passage that we read picked up from that point. Now, because Jesus' claim is considered a transgression worthy of execution, they take him to a guy who can actually carry out a death sentence, namely Pontius Pilate, who is the chief Roman official in Judea during this time. Now, several uh, historical sources beyond the Bible, not even in the Bible, besides the Bible, cite how Pilate's administration was often marked by bribery and savagery and frequent executions without trials. One time he even took money out of the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. In Luke 13, we read that he once killed Jewish worshipers within the temple as they were making sacrificial offerings during worship. This guy was a beast. So if I'm in the Sanhedrin... And I'm thinking, you know, we got to knock a guy off. The perfect guy that we want to do our dirty work is Pontius Pilate. And, and the words of ACDC, you know that song? Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Anybody remember that song? That's what this song was about, Pontius Pilate. Anyway, sorry. Uh, in the gospel of Luke's retelling of this moment, we, we see, you know, some of the accusations they brought before Pilate. Luke 23 says this, we have found this man subverting our nation. And then they bring Rome into it. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. Oh, not a good thing. And then the big one and claims to be Christ a king because that's what 
the Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to be, king of the Jews. Now, as you will see that it's in this claiming to be king language that Pilate particularly focused in on. But you've got to keep something in mind here. Very important, the, the, the social context in the moment. This is, all being, uh, this is all happening during Passover week, where there is an extra two, 300,000 people that, that, that came to Jerusalem. And for the entire week, they are celebrating their version of Independence Day. And as you can imagine, uh, Jewish hopes, Jewish conversations, Jewish talk about a future deliverance from their oppressors, from their current problems, ran high during that week. Thus, for Pilate and for Rome, such a, a patriotic week, if we can call it that, with a mass of people mixed in with some guy trying to claim he's a king, well, that can create a lot of problems, a problem whose solution is only one thing, crucifixion. The Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders there mentioned in our verses today know, know that full well. They know the fear and the paranoia by Roman leadership. And I think that is exactly why they take Jesus to Pilate at this time. Now, as I said, all the many accusations that were hurled at Jesus, Pilate zeroes in only on one of them there, this bit about being a king. And this is where I think it gets a little interesting. So in 15, verse 2, Mark 15, verse 2, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus answered, it's pretty interesting here. It's tough to translate and interpret in English. Some Bible translations have it like we have here. You say so. What is that exactly? Is that like a definite yes? Is that eh, a kind of sort of yes? Depends how you look at it, yes. What is that? You know, almost all scholars that I've read on this passage agree that yes, this is affirmative in its substance, but it is somewhat guarded, isn't it? It's, it's somewhat qualified, maybe even a little cryptic. Why? Why even answer like that? Why not just put it straight up to Pilate like he did to the Sanhedrin when they said, are you the Christ? And he just said, I am, in a very definitive way. What's this? You say so. Scholars agree that Jesus is likely a bit guarded here in his language because... Because Pilate's concept of what it means to be king and Jesus' concept of what it means to be king are poles apart from each other. I mean, think about it for a second. Think about Pilate in his life. He only knew one kind of kingship his whole life as a Roman citizen. The kind of kingship that was to be feared. The kind of kingship that was power hungry. The kind of kingship that was obtained and maintained by political conniving and intrigue and especially brutal force. That's the kind of kingship he understood. But the category of king who would say things like, turn the other cheek when insulted. Pray for those who persecute you. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. That category of king probably never even existed in Pilate's mind. And I believe Jesus knew that. And so he was careful not to let Pilate think he was like any other king he had ever heard of or saw. And this is why perhaps why Jesus adds something to the conversation that we saw there in the Gospel of John right after Pilate's question of, are you king of the Jews? He says, my kingdom, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, meaning if it was like this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. In other words, Pilate, my kingdom is nothing like what you think of as kingdom. If my kingdom, my way of reigning was like this world, yeah, you would see violence, but there's nothing, it's nothing like that. That's why you don't see violence. 
Jesus then clarifies it further. You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. Now why is he even trying to bring this up? Why, why should he give a rip about Pilate? Just think about that for a second. For this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world. Pilate, I came to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to me. I find that fascinating. You see, that is the kind of answer that is something far different than what Pilate would have saw or experienced from any other Roman or foreign king. The sense is clear. Jesus' kingship has a different origin, which means now it has a whole different goal and was, has a whole vastly different character from this world's kingdoms. He wasn't after domination by brute force. He didn't use political intrigue to bring about his ends. Instead, he used invitation. He invited people to experience, understand, and know the truth of God through his wisdom, through his actions of love and grace. He invited people to experience the deepest truths of human reality and existence and physical force is of little use to that end. Do we, modern American Christians, understand that to the end that God wants to get at physical force is of little use to bring it about? Unfortunately, Pilate, by this point in his life, he's just so cynical. When somebody brings up the issue of truth, I think this is said in in, in somewhat disgust. What is truth? Pilate knows truth. You know what truth is? You fear the king. You know what truth is? Now I was going to say something maybe a little harsher than that. But, <laughs> but don't tell me what truth is. Now I should point out when Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. I want you to understand. He does not mean that my kingdom is in some far, far away place. And my goal is from, to get everyone here into that far, far away kingdom. That's not what he means. No, his ministry is all about getting that kingdom into this world. His kingdom may not be from this world, but it is fully for this world. Amen? Jesus' plan is not simply to provide some kind of spiritual escape route from this ugly world. But his plan is to provide a means through which the purposes and the power and the values and the character and yes, the truth of that kingdom is brought to bear in very real and concrete measures. Brought to bear on the people and the cultures and the creation of this world. So it becomes as God intended. That's the truth he wants Pilate to understand. What he wanted the world to understand. I mean, think about it for a second. Jesus isn't a threat to anybody if he's simply about some far off place in the clouds. He's a threat. He's a real threat. Because he's all about the here and now. Changing this. Thy kingdom come. His will be done on earth. Not his kingdom. Get us to it. Forget the earth. Now right now this all sounds like splendid and heady theology. But how does that really affect the way we live? How does it really affect the way I live here and now? This is where I want to pause and drill down a little bit on a few important things. You know with all this king talk it got me thinking. Do I, as Joe American, truly grasp the concept to have Jesus as my king? We sing songs like crazy about God as king. In our service today, we're full of songs with God as king. But what does it really imply in practical ways for our life? 
Here is where living in a country, that experience uh, that I had, we're living in a country that had a, a, a true king, a good king, really helped me out. Again, I'm not told, when you picture this king, do not picture a royal that ends up on the cover of National Enquirer or would be talked about on Entertainment Tonight or like some other royals are, okay? I'm not talking about celebrity royal. I am talking about noble dignity. I'm talking about a person who out of their wisdom, out of their honor, out of their compassion and, and solid leadership literally could save people from dying and change the welfare of his people. That's the king I'm talking about. Now, by the way, as a side note, I just want to tell you that the Thai king is the only king ever to be born in the United States. He was actually born in Boston, Massachusetts. You know, his father was uh, getting a degree in public health at, at the Harvard Medical School. Just pray to God he wasn't a Red Sox fan. Um, <laughs> Now, as I said, the king is highly revered, highly revered. And in every house I'd go into, any business I did business with, any taxi I would sit in, any bus that I would ride, you would always have a picture of the king. And although the Thai king was by no means perfect, he was by no means above criticism, he did many things to improve the lives of the Thai people. For example, he sponsored thousands of royal projects that helped alleviate poverty. He pioneered any patent. He's a really smart guy. He actually patented cloud seeding technologies in Thailand that would bring rain to drought-stricken areas, drought-stricken farmers who are all very poor. And he also helped stop the opium growing in, among the hill tribes there by introducing alternative farming opportunities. And for these and many other reasons, is, that's why he was widely seen as the wise and kind and caring father of the nation. That's why he was seen as the representation of the best of Thai society, the best of what uh, Thailand stood for. And we need to have something greater to show, to, to give us a vision of something, especially in a place like Thailand, because, because the, the, the Thai government, you think things are bad here? The Thai government has struggled for decades with corruption. But it was going to be the king. It was going to be the king who was going to stand above all that. He was going to be the one who was going to give glory to the people, honor and dignity to the nation that seemed a nation that seemed so rife with sin and struggle and poverty and corruption and on and on. That can't, doesn't that sound almost biblical? The one who is going to give dignity and honor in a place full of sin. Now, although by law he didn't have direct power to make laws or sway elections and things of that nature, he would still wisely and skillfully step into the political arena when the government became abusive. Now, one such instance happened just two weeks before my family and I moved to Thailand to be missionaries there. It was 1992. And as often happens in Thai elections, someone became prime minister who was not even elected by the people. The government appointed this general to be prime minister. And, of course, the people protested. And by this time, uh, uh, this time it was particularly bloody. Um, up to 200,000 people just jammed central Bangkok, and, and, and there was a crackdown by the police, 3,500 arrests, hundreds of people injured, 52 people officially dead, 1,700 people went officially missing. Many of those who were arrested allegedly experienced torture. It was a mess, and it was all being played out on TV. And believe me, I was glued to CNN watching that every day because I'm going there in a couple of weeks. And the king then summoned these two generals that were on the opposing sides of this fight. And he, and he summoned them to his palace. Now look, 
When you go see the king on an official visit, you don't just kind of stroll in there and say, hey, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? It's not exactly how you do it. What happens when you go see royalty in Thailand? Well, these men, these very, very powerful men, generals are very powerful people in third world countries. These men walk into the room, they get on their knees, and they crawl to where this, the king was sitting. See that picture? That's them there now sitting, uh, uh, kneeling before, before the king. Now, when you are before the king in this kind of very formal, the first act that you do is not to speak. It's to listen. And listen, they did. And in his words to them, and which was televised on their TV, in his words to them, okay, you'll hear that this king knew that this country didn't exist for him, and neither did it ex- exist for these guys, but it existed for the good of the people. See if his words have any relevance to our cultural situation today. This is the words that he said to these men. It's a short speech. And, and again, this was broadcast on TV. He said this, the nation... I can see this. He's just looking right at him. The nation belongs to everyone, not to one or not to two specific people. The problems exist in our country because we don't talk to each other and resolve them together. People can lose their minds when they resort to violence. Eventually, they don't know why they fight each other or even what problems they need to resolve. They merely know that they must overcome each other and they must be the only winner. Sound familiar? And the king said, this in no way leads to real victory, but only danger. There will only be losers, only losers. Those who confront each other will all be losers. And the losers of the losers will be the nation. For what purpose are you telling yourself that you're the winner when you end up in your winning standing upon ruin and debris? Wise words, huh? Do you see how, like Jesus, the king didn't just go, bam! But he tried to lead these men into a better place through the truth. He tried to lead them by the substance of something that was undeniably greater, that was undeniably more noble. And can you hear how he was speaking to them with real authority without having to be an authoritarian? So how did that all turn out? Well, after that little speech, the two generals backed out. You don't turn your back on the king. You've got to back out from the throne area there. And after they, they left this room, they made their way out. And without, this is the great thing, without one more shot fired, without one more protest, without one more angry word spewed out into the air, the fighting ceased. The standoff ended, and peace and hope was restored to the people. That scene and those words cemented the king's legacy as the great and noble father of Thailand. And as one writer, Thai writer put it, it made the Thais believe that when things are spiraling into chaos, there was someone, there was someone who could bring peace and order to our lives. Does that sound a little familiar to you? about some king you might know? Why do I share that big, long story? Well, for one, it challenges me many, in many ways as an American Christian. 
For example, it got me thinking, do I see King Jesus as having that kind of authority in my life? Not just an authority, but the authority that has the final word. Or do I see his words in many cases as optional? You see his words as optional? And if I do, does it cut away at the very peace and hope that can be restored in my culture today? I mean, think about it. If those generals saw the, 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 the words of the king as optional, what do you think the outcome would be? It would have been far uglier if they saw his words as optional. Did you ever think for a moment how the hope of our culture rides not, not on the victory of some political ideology, but the hope of our culture rides on Christians living obediently to the words of our king? Amen. And when the king of Thailand told the generals, this needs to end, guess what they didn't do? Debate it for a while. No one responded after he spoke, you know what, let me think about it, I'll get back to you. Or, or the Christian version of that is, let me pray about it. No, they simply obeyed the word of the king and violence immediately stopped and hope was restored. So my question is, when you encounter the scriptures, when you encounter the words of Jesus, how do you hold them? Are they something like, you know, uh, leather seats in a new car, you know? uh, Nice option if you're into it. Or do his words carry the weight, the gravitas of a divine king behind it? Do we, like Pilate, have a view of kingship that sometimes pulls apart? from really grasping what it means to have Jesus as king? Do we, like Pilate, use the right nomenclature, like we use the right words in our praises and our prayers, but we are poles apart in understanding the implications of that authority in reality? For example, in my heart of hearts, Do I view what Jesus is saying about dealing with enemies often pulls apart from what I actually think or say or do in the real world? In my heart of hearts is what Jesus says about blessing those who hate us often pulls apart of the way I live, the way I actually live. In my heart of hearts is what Jesus says about taking care of the marginal, the stranger, the foreigner, about making disciples is that often pulls apart of what actually happens in my life. And are his words on the tough issues of our society, words that perhaps even contradict our preferred ideologies, are his words words to commit to or words that are optional? Are we on the same page or pulls apart from King Jesus? And here's the thing I want you to consider. What is the cost What is the cost to our communities, to our witness as Christians, to our kingdom impact, to bring about God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth, if we are indeed poles apart from the king? Let me share one more story about living in Thailand and we'll finish up. A few years later, after 1992, a few years later, we're now living in northern Thailand and we heard the news that the favorite princess of the people was going to come visit our small little town. And this, this, this lady was probably only second to her father uh, uh, in, in as much as what she did for the poor of her country. So the people just adored this woman. So my then six-year-old daughter, I told her about it, and I said, sweetie, you want to see a real princess? And you imagine a little six-year-old girl. Yeah, you know. 
And, and so we went to where the princess was going to come. We stood by the curb by the roadside there. And it was interesting, um, as we were hoping to get a glimpse of the princess, the car starts coming down the street at a certain distance away. It's like everybody knew exactly how far away where you got to do something. And it got about so far away, and everybody dropped to their knees, except me. <laughs> now, look, i got to be honest with you. I really struggled with that at that moment. Seriously, I was deeply convicted. You know, I was like, what, what do I, I'm conflicted, should I say? I'm like, what do I do with this, you know? And you can imagine, like, I'm the only white guy in town, first of all, you know, and I'm standing there, and I'm like eight inches taller than everybody. Now I'm really taller than everybody, and I'm standing there. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm an American. I don't bow to anybody. I mean, this is really going on. I promise you, this is what was going on in my head. You know, looking back, I never realized how much of my American ethos, how much of my American values and culture literally physically stiffened my legs. It's amazing. It's amazing how we don't know sometimes how much culture shapes us until the deep values of that culture is challenged by royalty. It gets me thinking how much of our American or political paradigms infuse and shape and perhaps even dictate our response to the king of kings. Well, anyway, as I was standing there like a big stupid howly, a guy with an M16 gave me a dirty look. And when you're in a standoff with a guy with an M16, uh, you might want to let him win that one, all right? So I dropped to my knees. What's interesting is when the door of the car opened, and all you saw was the foot and, and, the, and, and the lower part of the princess's leg just coming out of the car. The entire crowd gasped in that very moment, all in unison. It was like they totally sucked the oxygen out of the whole area. Why do I share that story? Does your view and experience of God the King ever leave you breathless? When was the last time? You know, for those of you who have studied and practiced Christian contemplation, you know that contemplation is really the experience. It's not the, it's not the praying you know, or meditating. It's that place where you come wordless before God because you are experiencing something so profound that there are no more words worthy to be said. Only breathless silence of awe will do at that point. And one of the things that left me in awe as I reflected over these passages that we read was something I never really caught before. See, in our story today, Jesus, the creator of the universe, stands before cynical, jaded, brutal, corrupt, pagan Pilate. And yet, this king of kings actually attempts to evangelize Pilate. He, I really believe he's inviting him to the truth of God because he could have stood silent like he did before, just silent. But he wanted Pilate to understand something about him. He wanted Pilate to know the truth. He wanted Pilate to come because he loved Pilate. In other words, Jesus, even then in that crazy moment, was still living on this man who had pronounced death over him. And folks, when I try to consider that, when I try to wrap my brain around that and really grasp it, it takes my breath away. And I don't think I'm off of my speculations about this 
Just think about it. A little while, a couple of hours later on the cross, as Jesus hung there in agony, Luke 23 tells us, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, these brutal, blind, hate-filled people who put me up here. Father, forgive them. What in the world kind of love is that? What kind of grace is that? I literally have no words for it but just the breathless silence of awe. Do you know that kind of royal, kingly love and grace for your life today? In response to this message, we will once again sing of our king, the amazing love he has for us. And as you sing or just sit silently, I even invite you to kneel if you want. I want you to consider, are you on the same page with the king? Are your poles apart in some parts of your life? Is there things in your life that need realignment with the King of Kings today? And if you don't know Jesus as Lord, if you don't know Jesus as King, would you consider giving your life to this great King today? The kind of King who has enough love, who has enough grace for even the most brutal and corrupt and hate-filled people of our world. That is the King that we worship. And that is the King and the only King that will restore hope to this bloody, beaten, and sinful world. Amen? Amen. What is Jesus the King saying to you this morning? Close your eyes, and as the worship team comes back, just use this time in silence with that question. What is the King saying to you today? I really do pray that that is the, the attitude and prayer of our hearts this morning as we leave here. Um, you know, that it actually makes it beyond the driveway and getting in your car, but it makes it all the way home and all the way through the week. And all I do, I honor you, Christ the King. Uh, in a little while, I'm going to give a blessing here. For those of you who need prayer, we're going to have prayer warriors to my right and to my left. If you'd like to come forward to receive prayer for healing, for wisdom, for guidance, uh, pray for family members, whatever it is, and especially especially if you need to do business with God as your king. Have you been making his words optional? And if you don't know Jesus as your king, I pray that you would come forward and pray with those people to give your life to the one king, the one king who can set it all straight, who can heal the deepest wounds and give you the deepest and most wonderful purpose of your life. So that's the king we worship. If you're able, please stand. And receive this blessing. Father, in the name of Jesus, may you bless these good people. May you know the King of Kings in your life. And may you be filled with his love, with his grace, with his power, with his courage to be his witness of the truth to a world that is swamped by lies. May you be his hands, his arms, his ears, his words to a hurting, lost, and broken world. And may the people of this, of this community see in you how great, how marvelous is our King. And to him be all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. The question then is the same today. Do we give Jesus the reverence and the dignity he deserves as King, Lord, and Savior? 
If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Kiona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. And if you need more, call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.